don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. All right, crew, welcome back to the Crypto Economy Podcast. I wanted to hit a little bit of a history lesson today. We've got a lot of new listeners uh, jumping in recently, and um, I hope that you guys go back and listen to some of the older episodes. There is a ton of awesome information in there, and there are some things that are uh, relevant enough that I think it's good to retouch on them sometimes, but I have never actually done a solid breakdown of SegWit2x, but there was a really good uh, explanation of the bug that I read right around when it happened, um, and uh, it's of course by Jimmy Song. If you were around at the time, you know there was tons and tons of discussion about this, um, but I think this is a really good history lesson that leads me into something I want to hit uh, also this week about the importance of running a node and what the security um, what the main value case for Bitcoin actually is. Um, so today we're going to hit Jimmy Song's SegWit2x bugs explained, particularly because these were, we had almost 90% of the hash power, almost all of the major like incumbent businesses in the space all on board and in agreement to move ahead with SegWit2x. These are supposedly the industry leaders and uh, everyone who's, you know, taking care of the protocol and keeping this network alive. They were huge players across the board. And yet, they were backing something that literally could have killed Bitcoin. And I don't think it was intentional. I think it was... uh, just a result of the widespread ignorance and or specialization of so many people in this industry where, you know, you might be good at software, but it doesn't mean you know jack about software protocols and what security assumptions they need. And with some industry leaders making some big changes recently and with BACT coming into this, and we're going to have a huge change in the infrastructure and the major players in this, we have to remember why and how defense of this protocol is possible, and more importantly, the specific reasons of why it's so important that these avenues always remain available. If the protocol cannot be secured against situations like this, it's not secure at all. All right, so with that, I will go ahead and jump into Jimmy Songs. This is actually posted on the Bitcoin Tech Talk Com. It is a medium publication, uh, and uh, uh, this was posted on November 20th of 2017, so this was just after the SegWit2x got called off, and when all these bugs came to light, and it was realized what a disaster it would have been had we just listened to the major uh, businesses and um, mining players within the industry. All right, so... This is SegWit2x Bugs Explained by Jimmy Song. The SegWit2x hard fork was called off a little over a week ago in an email post to the 2x mailing list. 
Several parties threatened to split the network anyway, and we eagerly waited for block 494784 to see whether someone would mine the 2x hard fork or not. As it turns out, there was a bug in the Segwit2x software which caused the client to stop at block 494782. In this article, I'm going to examine the details of what caused the software to stop, why it stopped a block before it was supposed to, and what would have happened had Belsh et al. not cancelled the hard fork a week earlier. The Setup the 2x part of the hard fork had been planned for the past six months. The New York Agreement was agreed to in late May. The code was written mostly in June, and the BTC1 slash Segwit2x software was released in July. The specifics of the NYA, or New York Agreement, required that 1. Segwit be activated at 80% instead of 95%, and 2 the 2x hard fork be activated within six months of May 23rd. The software was created in the BTC1 repository with lead developer Jeff Garzik. To make the first condition happen, they incorporated James Hilliard's BIP91 proposal, which indeed successfully activated Segwit on the network on August 24th at block 481,824. To make the second condition happen, BTC1 software included a clause that activated a hard fork to double the block size exactly 144 times 90 blocks after SegWit activation. This number was chosen because 10 minutes per block means about 144 blocks per day, so 144 times 90 blocks would take about 90 days. This put the forking block height at 494,784 and the actual fork around November 15th or so, which would indeed satisfy the second part of the NYA. The bug. There were a limited number of differences in the BTC1 codebase compared to Bitcoin Core. In total, there were about 500 lines of changes, most of which weren't consensus critical. Yet there were at least two bugs in the 100 or so changed lines to support a hard fork at block 494,784. To understand this bug, it might be easier to take a look at the set of changes that first introduced the idea of forking after 144 times 90 more blocks. Begin graphic. Just to let you know, there are a number of uh, graphics in this, or screenshots, I guess you could say, in this article, and pretty much all of them are going through specific lines of code or, you know, the, the language specifically in the code base that's making these changes. Um, and uh, what he's got here are two screenshots that look like, okay, the caption, yes, it says it looks like it's uh, from a terminal window or command line interface. And um, he's pulling the diff command on the git repos or the repositories that's just showing exactly the different elements that were changed with uh, Garzik's update and it's not going to come across in audio at all and I'm going to do a very very poor job of reading it and it's long so uh, if you want to dig into that and that stuff is meaningful to you uh, 
feel free to follow the link and check out the article so you can see the specific lines that were changed and what they look like. Um, but otherwise, he goes into exactly what it all means in the article, so I don't feel it's really necessary to go over it. Um, so the next graphics we'll basically just skip over. End graphic. You can see that there's a parameter for how long it would take after SegWit activation to double the block size, specifically 144 times 90 blocks. In the code, this is a concept called SegWit seasoning. Basically, this lets SegWit exist by itself without a doubling of block size for 144 times 90 blocks. To figure out whether it's time to allow larger blocks, the Boolean variable f segwit seasoned is set to true if 144 times 90 blocks have passed, false if not. The next if statement specifically utilizes this boolean to figure out what the maximum base block size, or the block size minus witness data, is supposed to be. 2 megabytes if true, 1 megabyte if false. Normally, base blocks would be rejected if the block is greater than 1 megabyte, but here we see that blocks are rejected if the block is greater than 2 megabytes, should f segwit seasoned be true. This is a critical part of the consensus code that rejects two large blocks and thus requires a hard fork. To actually figure out whether f segwit seasoned should be set to true or false, the code here uses the version bits state function. Specifically, the code is supposed to look at the block 144 times 90 blocks previous and check if SegWit was active on the network. If SegWit was active 144 times 90 blocks ago, that means greater than 1 megabyte base blocks are legal for this block. That is what it's supposed to test. Version bits state. There's a subtle bug here, and it has to do with how version bits state is called. To understand, take a look at the actual function defined in versionbits.cp. This is going to look like gobbledygook unless you know something about the code base, but allow me to explain. The first argument of the versionbits state function is supposed to be a pointer to a block. The variable named pindexPrevious indicates it's not the pointer to the block itself but the block's parent. In fact, every other call to version bits state in the validation.cpp file specifically uses the pointer to the parent block, not the block itself, for that reason. Here's the problem. p index fork buffer above is 144 times 90 blocks before the current block, not the current block's parent. So in essence, we are looking at whether the block 144 times 90 minus 1 before the current one has SegWit activated or not. We are off by one block and thus larger blocks get activated one block earlier. How did this not get caught? This particular set of changes was part of a much larger pull request found here. The pull request has 221 comments, most of which are arguing over the definition of 2 megabyte blocks. You can see that this particular commit doesn't actually make it into this pull request until way lower on the page. 
Only one person seems to have approved the changes, Ape Trusel, and there are complaints near the end by Dedelnix, he of Bitcoin Cash fame, about this pull request not having enough tests. Errors on errors. This code snippet of calculating 144 times 90 blocks passed was accepted as the right way of doing things and nobody caught the fact that this would cause problems later. In order to make sure the 2x hard fork wouldn't be overtaken by the 1x chain and reorganized, basically completely wiped out, they instituted a rule for wipeout protection. This requires the forking block to have greater than one megabyte base block size. The same logic as above was used and essentially forced block 494,783 to have a base block size greater than one megabyte, not 494,784. This is why BTC1 is stuck on block 494,782, because BTC1 software is waiting for a greater than one megabyte base block at 494,783. But wait, there's more. As if this off by one bug wasn't enough, there's another bug in the block assembler code. Block assembler is part of miner.cpp which is the code responsible for creating new blocks. Generally, this is only code useful to miners, as they're the only ones that actually create new blocks. Specifically, the variable fWitnessSeasoned is not initialized, but gets used. This is undefined behavior as Peter Wella has shown. Graphic caption. Note that fWitnessSeasoned is used four times without being initialized anywhere. Why is this important? Well, it turns out that this particular variable determines the maximum block size and weight that the software will make. If this variable is false, then the software will never make a large enough block to fork the chain, since the maximum block weight will be 4 million and not 8 million as the specifications of the 2x hard fork require. Conversely, if this variable is true, then the software will generate invalid blocks before the fork of the chain. So it was possible that even if a miner wanted to mine on 2x, this software would not let them. This code change was introduced in this pull request link. And once again, Jeff Garzik was the author, and it was merged with perhaps one reviewer, Faisal M., who didn't catch the bug. What would have happened if 2x wasn't cancelled? Miners that were planning to fork with 2x would naturally have thought 494,784 was the block, since Jeff Garzik and the Segwit2x team have stated numerous times that this was the forking block. Even if miners weren't using the code above, which would possibly have prevented them from creating bigger blocks, they would have customized their software to find larger blocks for block 494,784, not 494,783. This would have caused the same stall at block 494,782, and everyone would have started to try to debug what was causing the problem. Most likely, some miner would have figured things out and simply mined a large block to fork 2x anyway. How long that would have taken is anyone's guess, but it's pretty clear this would have been a PR disaster. 
More than that, as Greg Maxwell points out here, link, exchanges would have frozen accounts as of block 494784, not 494783. So all the balances for 2x coins would have been off depending on who got in on block 494783. This again would have caused some serious damage. Conclusion Reviewing and testing consensus changes is really, really hard. It looks like BTC1 had exactly one coder and one reviewer for these critical consensus changes, and that simply isn't enough to detect subtle bugs like the first or obvious bugs like the second. What's more, because the off by one change was accepted at a fairly early date, around June 15th, later on when the code was used for wipeout protection, the code was assumed to be good due to previous, quote, review. Essentially, even one or two weak reviews in a chain of reviews can break the entire consensus system with a catastrophic bug. Hopefully, this can be an object lesson in making sure critical changes are reviewed very thoroughly. Stay safe and go thank the developers that do the hard work of not just coding, but reviewing. All right, and that was Jimmy Song's piece on the bugs that were embedded in the Segwit2x code. Um, I just think that is extremely important. Like these are seriously important uh, historical lessons that we've gotten in the short history of Bitcoin, and it is so important in demonstrating the fact that just because someone is an industry leader in an exchange or in mining or whatever does not mean that they understand or know what's going on or the critical factors at play in making a huge protocol breaking decision. So many people were behind this and they had one coder and one reviewer and something that literally would have destroyed the network, brought it to a halt for the first time in was it seven years at the time, eight years at the time, since the um, like that buffer overflow bug with accidentally creating like 10 billion Bitcoins? <laughs> um, but so these things are absolutely crucial. And you can't just casually, how many times, if anybody who was there, how many times was it heard and screamed and stated and repeated and copied and pasted that all you had to do is change one parameter and you have bigger block size and how the engineers can't just get behind this when they're causing contention and all this stuff and it's just not that simple it's not so i think this is a really good lead-in um to what we'll be talking about tomorrow as well and um uh, i've got a bit of a gap here but We've got uh, the guy out mowing. We've got a whole bunch of background noise that I'm trying to work around at the moment. Um, so I think I'm going to lose my ability to record uh, easily here. So we will come back to this, and this topic will be important to what we discuss tomorrow. And uh, I'll drop some extra commentary because there's still some things I want to say about this whole situation um, that unfolded uh, come tomorrow. So... Stay tuned, guys, uh, and don't miss tomorrow's episode. Um, if you would like to, if you are not following Jimmy Song, I am sure most people know who Jimmy Song is at this point if you've been in this space. But if not, 
Um, you should definitely follow him. Check out what he's got. He's got a lot of writing on Medium, and he does the programming blockchain seminars uh, that you can sign up for if you want to really understand how to code for Bitcoin and uh, blockchain applications and that kind of thing. You'll be able to find his links and Twitter and everything in the post. Um, obviously, I will link and tag him in it. Uh, his Twitter, I think, is just at Jimmy Song. Yeah, J-I-M-M-Y-S-O-N-G. Uh, so that's his Twitter tag if you want to find him up there. Um, but of course, you can always just go through the show notes and everything will be linked for you. Okay, guys, um, don't forget to follow me at The Crypto Economy on Twitter and Medium and Mastodon at the BitcoinHackers.org instance. Uh, if you want to link straight to that, you can find that in my Twitter um, description. Uh, don't forget to uh, subscribe to the podcast so you can stay up to date on all this stuff and keep hearing all the important lessons learned in the crypto economy and explore all the fun ideas in Bitcoin mining and the system and the philosophy and the cypherpunks and all that cool shit. This is where you will find it at the Crypto Economy Podcast. So subscribe, share, uh, send it out to all your friends in the crypto economy space who want to learn all the cool stuff and uh, dig into this topic at a really, really deep and interesting level. And that's what we're here for. And also, if you would like to support the show, you can always um, donate to the Bitcoin address I will have available in the show notes and uh, the Twitter post and all that great stuff. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has so far uh, helped to keep my coffee mug full of fresh uh, dark roast coffee. <laughs> and um, uh, yes, if you, if you think you're getting value out of this and you really enjoy listening to this, um, please consider donating. Uh, it really, really is a huge help. Um, and also, if you have not gotten your treasure, one other way you can uh, support the show outside of sharing, uh, leaving some feedback on iTunes, uh, give me a review, uh, and or uh, donating to the Bitcoin address is to purchase your treasure through my affiliate link. So if you're looking to get a hardware wallet, highly, highly recommended. Trezor is the way to go. Use my affiliate link. You'll purchase it, same price, no cost to you, but you'll send a couple of bucks my way. Thank you guys so much for listening. I will catch you all tomorrow with another episode of the Crypto Economy Podcast. Take it easy, guys.